You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Guidepost. My co-host, Willie, is with us today. Morning, Tony. Morning, sir. How are you doing? I am hanging in there, as you know, because we've already been on the phone for three hours and it's 10 a.m. So I'm yeah. pretty well aware of how I'm doing. We've tried to get this podcast rolling now for 14 minutes. So let's hope this time it works, Willie. <laughs> and so, Tony, we are, uh, we're thrilled to have with us today a fantastic guest. We have Galen Rosenwax and we were talking with Galen trying to figure out how do we describe her? You know, what's she's she's done so much incredible work in the marine world over the years. And I think we've just decided woman of the sea. So Galen, welcome to the guidepost. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And Tony, I think you have a pretty interesting story for how you met Galen. You want to share that with folks? Yeah. So um, Paul Dixon and I were filming for that movie Hardlined and uh and, and the camera crew was pretty awesome. Galen, if I'm not mistaken, the day before, the wind was blowing somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 knots. Like, I had to move my car in the hotel <laughs> because I was getting salt spray from the ocean. It was a football field away. And I was like, wow, I'm going to watch my car rust. Do you recall that? It was like, it yeah. was above a gale warning. It was like, don't even go out, right? That's, that sounds about right for Montauk yeah. the last fall. Yeah. yeah, it was. And there was like beach erosion. Like I could see like a massive chunk of the beach. I was like, man, we're not going fishing tomorrow. So I may have gone out and had a few drinks at a lovely Mexican restaurant uh, and was figuring that we weren't going fishing and we went fishing. So the, the camera guy's from Montana and he looks at me and goes, is it going to be rough today? Because I get seasick. And I was like. We've set the tone for the day. So they uh, they make me walk down the dock like four or five times to film me. And there's this beautiful Invincible with like brand new. I mean, brand, brand spanking new, just great. And I looked at the boat and I tripped over one of the cleats on the dock. And I almost went ass over tea kettle into, into the Atlantic Ocean. And I was like man, this is just not a good day. So Paul and I get loaded on the boat and walking down the dock holding a quiver of fly rods is Galen and her mom. And they hop on a regulator with angry, angry seas and just go flying out of the inlet. And I looked at Paul and I said, what the heck is that? Like, what just happened? You know, those are... Those are adventurous souls because I wouldn't be out here today if we weren't if we didn't have to film this movie. And that's when he told me about Galen. And uh, and I knew we had to get to know her because she's got such a great story. And why don't you tell the guests a little bit about yourself, Galen? You know, what drove you to get to, to go to school, to love the ocean? And like, we'll we'll, we'll just get a little deeper from there. Sure. Yeah. And I have to say about that day, it was a totally epic afternoon. And Oh, yes, it was. I mean, there were fish everywhere. I mean, we went out the inlet and I think within five minutes, we were just in like crazy blitzes of stripers. And it was, 
you know, I think uh, this fall we were out in some really crazy weather that wasn't even like the most crazy day. Um, it was insane. Like, but there were sleet some days, but the fish, there were just so many fish and so many birds. It was like hard to stay away. There was like one day there were like whales and dolphins and just everywhere you look, just like acres of striped bass. It was just, it was just insane. Um, anyway, yeah, so I'm a marine scientist, photographer, and filmmaker. Um, I started my career um, really like studying bluefin tuna. Well, I started in the Antarctic doing research on big vessels, um, ecosystem stuff. And then I transitioned because I've always been a fisherman. I transitioned to studying bluefin tuna and their migratory movements. And I was super lucky to, um, I did my graduate work at Duke, but I hooked up with the Tag a Giant program and Dr. Barbara Block. And I got to spend hundreds of days on the water chasing my favorite fish in the ocean, the bluefin tuna. Um, I love all fish, but bluefin definitely, you know, are just so enigmatic and so incredibly beautiful. So I was lucky enough to spend so many days on the water. And I'd never forget the first day that I saw a bluefin, you know, in the flesh. I dreamed about seeing one. And when we pulled one up and just fishing on these beautiful sport fishing boats and putting these tags in and learning where they went. But I had this moment, like I had spent, you know, I was like studying a fish that was going extinct, it felt like. And I don't, Willie can talk a lot about bluefin too. And we usually go down a rabbit hole of bluefin talking as we speak to each other. But the reality is that like, I just had this moment where I'd seen all of these beautiful fish. And over the years of doing my work, you know, I watched their populations decline. And I was like, somebody needs to know that this is happening but not only that but people needed to know what science was doing to try to understand what was happening to these fish and how we could then you know keep them in the ocean and then all of these other questions that started like popping up you know about climate change and changes in different patterns overfishing you know so many things that scientists were working so hard to understand and we would just hear these gloom and doom stories so I left grad school I left my PhD and I started telling these stories so I linked up with different scientists that I had known um, had worked with so I actually my first expedition doing more storytelling was up in the Arctic in the Bering Sea with the group of scientists from Woods Hole that I had done my original work in the Antarctic uh, with so it was just incredible to be back up there looking at big ecosystem science again on a big vessel and an icebreaker I did most of my big ship science has been on icebreakers either in the arctic or the antarctic and um just to also like what I thought was really cool about being in the Bering Sea I'd always wanted to be there because of like the tremendous commercial fisheries that are up there so really looking at a system from a scientific point of view that's so important for a fishery um, and so now I basically do that I either link up with scientists and tell stories or I have a lot of stories I want to tell whenever possible I incorporate fishing into them um, even if I'm telling a story I did a project in Palau on corals and I definitely made time to fish um, I actually went a few days before I was going to start to work so I could go catch some giant trevally um, and I also have now done a series about like fishing with science and fishing for science um, that also is about giant trevally but in Seychelles so you know just whenever I can you know it's just telling these incredible ocean stories and I'm so lucky that I get to spend so much time in and on the ocean and trying to figure out you know all of these cool things and what scientists are doing and trying to share that work with people the pandemic must have driven you crazy, Galen. I know I asked this question, but I know this already. You were getting a little you were getting a little cagey. Like now that the world's opening up, I'm I think I think you might be globetrotting a little bit. Am I correct? 
Yeah, working on it for sure. Working on figuring out where to go. And we did travel a little bit in the pandemic. And I have to say that day that I saw you in the fall, we went out in some crazy conditions. And I really think it was because we just needed to be on the ocean because we had been so, I had been so trapped that whenever I could, like, unless it was really crazy weather, and actually I went out on some of those days, um, it we, uh, I just needed to be out there. And, you know, it was like my one outlet where I felt, you know, connected with what I do. Um, but yeah, the pandemic definitely threw a huge wrench in all of my work and trying to figure out sort of what's safe to do and where to go now and all of that is going to be. But I'm really lucky that I live in Montauk and I live by the ocean. And, you know, two weeks ago I was out and I was like in a pod of fin whales and you know, dolphins and saw lots of bluefin and it was pretty awesome. So, you know, and Galen, let's, you know, you had mentioned kind of like just getting stir crazy and definitely want to talk about, you know, some of your current work, but you know, you were talking about Montauk and, and, you know, fin whales and stripers and all that good stuff. And you kind of started at grad school, right. And bluefin tuna. I'm wondering, can you kind of take us back a little bit? Like what got you into this stuff? You know, like obviously there's a much kind of longer draw, right. And like a passion for fishing and conservation that, that kind of got you going. Just kind of hear, curious to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I have been on a boat since pretty much the day I was born. I think my, the first picture of me on a boat was when I was two weeks old. I'm really lucky that my mom, as Willie, as Tony mentioned, she's, we fish together a lot and, um, she loves the ocean and introduced me and my brother to it, you know, really, before I could even walk. Um, and, you know, through my childhood, everything we did sort of revolved around the ocean and travel and exploring. Um, and everywhere we went was pretty much ocean-based. And if it wasn't, there was always like an ocean component to it. Um, I was lucky my dad is a professor, so he was invited to speak all over the world growing up. And so if we were in Southeast Asia in a city, you know, within a week, we were somewhere by the, the, by the beach sleeping in a hut in Bali or something like that, you know, and from the time I was like literally five years old, we were doing stuff like that. And it always involved fishing. We always went fishing, like the one hobby that like my dad has. And the one thing that is like the family thing we do is fishing. And so for me, it's just always been a way to connect, but then I sort of always took it beyond that, you know? So if we were fishing on a pier near where we lived or on a party boat, I would always like dissect the fish and see, you know, what it was eating. It didn't just go to that. And I would like figure out like which lure, because I would see them like, you know, puke up whatever they were eating, you know, I'm like, oh, well now what should I use? So it was always like a big puzzle. And I think just as I learn more about the ocean, there's just so many more mysteries and I'm always learning something new. And I think that's what I love about the ocean. It doesn't matter from the time I was two years old until today. You know, yesterday I saw something totally new, you know, it's just awesome, right? Because, you know, and I think that that's what's so awesome about the ocean. But, you know, and then the reality of it is like, so I was always with my family by the ocean. And then as soon as I could start, you know, taking classes or reading books or going to marine science camps, I did that, right? So through high school, I was doing all of these like crazy programs in the Florida Keys, in Maine, and California, wherever I could get in the ocean and have some sort of formal education about it, I did that. And then obviously in college and grad school and, and throughout. So it's been really awesome, you know, just to like find that passion and be able to convert it into a career. You know, Galen, I think one of the most, you know, there's no doubt that when 
we listen to you talk about this stuff there's just nothing but passion running through your veins <laughs> and as much as i love to tease the little character you know the only person the only scientist that i have ever dealt with you know on a consistent basis other than you that just i mean if you want to see him light up if you want to see a bad day go to a good day talk anything about fishing what what they're gonna and it doesn't it doesn't matter what species it is the willie is brilliant he's polished the kid the kid could be a senator that's not why we were interested in hiring him at the guides association it's he has that he has the exact same passion as you and like as i listen to you it it makes me think of him because it's so rare i think generally speaking a lot of the scientists get into it because they 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 are enamored with the ocean and but that that just like passion like what do you want to do on your day off well, i want to fish i mean yeah. that's that's yeah. that's my boy willie through and well through. i guess I, think, I guess all that i guess all that guilt tripping for all the razzing on the past dozen podcasts really i really got to you huh tony <laughs> i don't know man it's just uh, i'm just feeling emotional today willie you know just feeling a little emotional. I'm, I'm waxing poetic. It's wonderful to hear, though. I mean, I, I, I hear someone like Galen talk, and it's just, I don't know. It, it's, it's just so awesome whether you see it in a little kid or an old person or a scientist or a plumber. It's just, it's fantastic to hear that passion because, I don't know, it gives me hope for the future. Um, I don't even know what question to ask you, Galen. Like you just, you mentioned everything from Maine to the Seychelles to, you know, I mean, if people ask me a question, like, when did you start love loving fishing? And I, my answer is, I, I don't remember any point in my life where I didn't want to go fishing. I've had bones sticking out of my body and I've been like, as soon as these pain meds hit, I'd really like to go fishing. Galen, I got once got, uh, um, a tooth knocked out from a core drill when I was an electrician that hit a piece of rebar and it swung around and hit me in the side of the face. And it was the day before New Year's Eve and I demanded that the dentist pull the tooth out of my mouth because I have a tradition of going fishing on New Year's Day. And I was like, I can't do this with this half a tooth in my head. Yeah, the, the addiction is strong, right? Um, you know, we talked to you last time, you know, about your favorite fish and, and freshwater. We know that's a king salmon. I can see the one just behind your head on the wall. We know you love GTs. Obviously, you love striped bass. Like, what's a goofy fish, you know, that you could just die? Like, so Willie right now is trolling for crappie. He is mass. He has decided, and now the whole he, world knows that. Thanks, Tony. He's, yeah, he is. He, he, you know, ne you know. A couple of months ago, he was throwing like striper jigs for giant flathead catfish. That was that was what he wanted, to, and that was too easy. Too easy for him. Yeah. Now he wants to troll in a kayak and figure out how to catch jumbo suspended crappie. And that God love funny. him. He's doing great. You should see the pictures. What's the last goofy thing that you got into? You know, the, you were just like, okay, that's it. 
I'm figuring oh, wow. this goofy fish out. I feel like that's like you every know. day when I'm fishing. I'm always like tying <laughs> weird things. I'm like, oh, this color bead and that color bead. I try like all sorts of weird things for fluke, especially here. Um, I like when we're bottom fishing, you know, I like to keep it interesting. And, um, you know, you're trying to always catch something bigger and whatever. But I think that for me, it's like tying all these like weird jigs and lures and for fluke and sea bass and whatever, because that's really what we have. Um, that's like the easy stuff to, to catch or the fun stuff to catch. I like to keep it interesting. I'm also trying to figure out new ways to catch stripers. Um, and it actually is interesting. You mentioned the salmon that's behind me, um, because I'm obsessed with Chinook salmon. They're definitely my second favorite fish in the ocean. And remind us how big that one was behind you, Galen. That one was about 55 pounds. Um, it's not the biggest one that I've caught. I've caught quite a few over 50, but they've all been released. So it's all like a length weight regression, uh, measurement. So, um, I'm really into releasing any big fish that's a potential spawner, no matter what. Um, very important. And that was, you know, actually it's funny cause that was one of my favorite fishing stories ever. And I'm going to sort of digress into it because it was the first salmon I ever caught. And, um, we were trolling up in British Columbia in the ocean. And so it, it does tie back into the, my new technique for stripers that I've been trying. Um, and so where we go fishing, we troll and we use cut plug herring. So, um, so I had this dream that morning and I hadn't really been fishing very much. And so in my dream, I was catching this giant salmon, right? So then I was like, okay, today's the day I'm going to catch my first salmon. And like the fishing is amazing up in this place in the Haida Gwaii. Like it's phenomenal, especially back when I caught this fish, which was over 20 years ago. Um, I mean, it's still phenomenal, but then it was like every fish was over 35 pounds. It was like, you know, but there weren't a lot of over 50. Anyway, so it was, the rod went like tap, tap, tap. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get this. So I pick up the rod, the fish is gone. And I'm like, okay, like, whatever and so then I like let out a tiny bit of line and the fish comes back and it's just like a massive hit which is so much better than when like it actually just like takes the bait I actually felt it set the hook and I'm like okay this is a big fish so it goes on a couple of runs and it's just incredible so like 45 minutes later we finally see this fish we're a super super light tackle so we see this fish I see this fish under the boat and it like it looks just massive right? Like I just see it and it's just this huge shadow of this beautiful Chinook salmon. And a few minutes later, we get it up. It's in great condition. We bring it up on deck. We, you know, we measure it, take the length weight, you know, length and girth. And then we carefully like take like one or two pictures and then like gently put him back in the water, make sure he's like super strong and let him go. And it was just the most incredible fish, like one of my favorite fish I've ever caught. Like it was just such an incredible moment, such a gorgeous fish um also like the biggest chinook i'd ever seen at that point and um just also like to feel that kick of the fish swim away like such a powerful fish and like the caudal peduncle the tail was just like so big um and so it gets back to what you were asking like what's the wackiest thing that you would do so i've been trying to troll cut plug herring for striped bass in the rips love it it's like super challenging to do for a bunch of different reasons because First of all, like to get the right, because you're going over structure. So there you're in deep water and you're trolling at different dips. But like you don't want to catch the bottom here, but you need to keep it as close to the bottom to get it to the stripers. So half the time you're like 
get it to the right depth but then like you have to like wind it in because you're going over that structure so it's been really challenging and then the other problem is we have bluefish and so the bluefish like to come and you're using such light tackle and you're using such light leader that like it's it's like a joke right so if you there's a lot of bluefish around you can't do it and then also getting the speed so that the herring spins the right speed, but also it needs to be slower. It needs to be a little bit faster than for the salmon so it doesn't quite spin right. So anyway, but it's just so fun to fight a fish on this tackle because you're using, you know, like a super long rod. It's like super light tackle. And I haven't caught a striper yet doing this, but I'm working on it. So are we so. going to see a video on striper mooching soon? Is that what I'm hearing? Do you well, have the little I, knuckle buster reel with the one-to-one -one ratio too, or have you not quite gone down that rabbit hole? Oh, no, of course I have those. Yeah, so the other thing is, so the lodge that we go to up in the Haida Langara Island Lodge, which is an absolutely incredible place, and it's probably my favorite place on the planet, um, and like the one place if I could go anywhere, I would be right now. But um, so for releasing big fish, they actually give you a, raw, a reel. So I have a more than one um, of these reels because I always release my big fish. So first I got the fiberglass mount that you see behind me for my first fish. That was like a gift from the lodge for releasing it. And then I've subsequently gotten a number of reels and it's cool because they're engraved and it's awesome. And there are these Islander reels that are just phenomenal. Um, and so, yeah, so now I have the whole full setup. I've got the exact tackle that we have, that we use up there. Nothing has changed. I even have herring that I took from up there that I put in the, some of the, cause we do take some salmon home. So I have everything exactly. Um, but I just haven't figured out. But yeah, those reels are like my absolute favorite to catch any fish on. It's like, you know, it's just so fun. And I think that's why I like fly fishing because it's so similar. Um, but it's just so much better. I mean, you still have drag and everything, but it's just the nuances and how you feel the fish move on such a long rod and like everything. It's just what makes it so fun. That's so. wild. And no, it's so cool to like take stuff from other places right and see it adapt i remember bringing like you know cod jigs to hawaii and catching all sorts of crazy bottom fish and that sort of thing it's just always fun to kind of see new gear you know in a new context and no tony i will not be using those 16 to 20 foot crappy rods anytime soon but at the same time it, <laughs> it's cool to kind of to see that all evolve and you know i think um there's so much fish stuff to talk about and i want to get back to it galen but i also i know I know you're so passionate and excited about your work. And, you know, I think all of us on this call, we have this, what I always affectionately refer to as a work-life blend, right? Like it all kind of bleeds and bleeds into itself. And I just want to give you an opportunity to, to let folks know, you know, what are some of the major projects that you're working on right now? What are you, you know, where in the world and what, what species you're focusing on? Just curious, you know, what's really got your attention? Well, right now, pretty much um, sperm whales have taken over my life. Um, I'm working on a big film project on sperm whales and my personal connection to them, which actually ties back to one of your earlier questions about how I sort of fell in love with the ocean. Um, so my film is called Finding Feisty. Um, it was a feature story on the cover of Outside Magazine last, um, last summer in June. Um, and then now, so we're working on this film and it's about this baby whale named Feisty or a young male sperm whale that washed ashore, stranded himself on the beaches of Long Island near Robert Moses State Park. Um, I was not even two years old when this happened. And um, they 
the guys who ran came to him on the beach decided that they were going to bring him into the nearby boat basin um, at Robert Moses. And so the Coast Guard came. They actually wrapped a rope around his tail and dragged him into this boat basin from Oak Beach. Now, not the best whale handling at the time, but it was the best that they could do. I mean, it was in the early 80s. So, you know, they did the best job that they could. But they brought him into this basin. And they had him there for 10 days, expecting him to die, basically. They brought him in so that they'd have a convenient place to do the necropsy and all of that. But at the same time, it hit the news. And everybody that was nearby could come and see this young whale. So he's about 26 feet. And you know, he's probably like five or six years old. And um, these veterinarians and watermen started working on this whale. And they wanted to figure out why he stranded and... They did. They figured out that he had pneumonia. They figured out the right blend of antibiotics to give him. And they started feeding him antibiotics in squid by hand. So my mom at the time had her two toddler children, heard about this whale. My dad was a professor at Stony Brook. So and some of the people working on the whale were from Stony Brook. And she brought us there to see this whale every day. So here I am, you know, basically like baby Galen, seeing this monster from the deep, right? Just this incredibly cool animal swimming around this boat base. And at first it was just lethargic. And the, But what I remember about it is when he was swimming around and he came by the side and he turned and I had this like incredible eye connect with this whale. And it's something that has stuck with me like from that day forward. And to be honest with you, like I didn't remember what kind of whale he was or any of those details until, you know, a few years later, later in life, we just always knew his name was Feisty. And so my brother, mom, and I would always talk about Feisty and how incredible it was to see this animal you know, and this huge animal from, you know, the middle of the ocean, from the depths of the ocean, um, up close and personal. So then, you know, my career goes on and on, and I start thinking about Feisty. I start Googling, doing a little bit of research. And so Feisty was a young sperm whale. And it was really the first, you know, the first moment that I learned about, you know, those mysteries from the deep. And so after that, it was, you know, we always were by the ocean and in the ocean, but so now I've decided that I wanted to reconnect with sperm whales and I've been able to. So through this film, I'm telling the story of Feisty's rescue because Feisty was rehabilitated after nine days and sent back into the ocean. So the question really is, well, where's Feisty now if he survived? And they do think that he did. He swam away very strongly and they actually saw him a year later because he had some distinctive scars. Um, and so where would he be? He would be, you know, in his mid 40s, basically a mature male sperm whale roaming the Atlantic Ocean. So my film seeks to sort of talk about where he could be now, where he should have been then, because the amazing thing about sperm whales is that they're matrilineal and matriarchal. So they actually stay with their family unit. So the females stay together for their entire lives. And then the males will stay with their mothers and their family unit until they're teenagers when they then leave and form these bachelor groups and sort of roam the ocean and sort of go everywhere. So you'd find them in the Arctic and then, you know, all over the ocean until they come back to see their families. Um, so flash forward to a few years ago when we started um, sort of delving into, well, where would these whales be? And we went to Dominica and got in the water with sperm whales to really understand um, 
to understand and film them and understand these amazing family units that they live in. So much like these whales would be in, like Feisty should have still been in his community of whales in his family unit, people took care of Feisty and brought him into a human community. So it's all about whales and family, the, um, the story and sort of those units. And the beauty of it is that my mom is actually part of this project, which has been really fun because she's come to Dominica and we've been in the water, the two of us with, you know, mom and daughter whales. So it's pretty neat. Um, but being in the water with a sperm whale is just what the most incredible experience. Like I, I've had many incredible experiences in the ocean. And I think that coming eye to eye with a enormous whale while underwater and having them decide that they want to interact with you is really just one of the most incredible experiences ever. They like, it just feels like they're penetrating into your soul. And I had, um, I've had many incredible experiences with them and many incredible interactions. At this point, we've done three expeditions. So I spent a little over a month total in the water with these animals. Um, but you know, I had one interaction where it was literally 25 to 30 minutes, just me and this one animal. And it didn't matter who else was around. It was just, she never lost eye contact with me. She was pirouetting around me. And at one point, I think I was like in her mouth wide open. And it was just, you know, I think terrifying since my mom was there. So for her, it was terrifying. For me, it was just like this most magical experience of being welcomed into this world and just the curiosity. And it felt like a conversation with this whale. And like we were sort of like in this like dance sort of underwater um, until she decided to, you know, just gently swim away. But at one point she was like sleeping right in front of me vertically. It was just, it was just wild. So that's the project. So the film's called Finding Feisty and it's about telling these stories of reconnection and about the story of this baby whale. Um, and it's pretty much taken over my life right now, other than when I get to go fishing. So. Wow. That is, that is <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, what a, what a story, right? Kind of full circle. And I, I think you're, I mean, so many of us as fishermen, you know, we see these, we, we see whales all the time, right? They're a tool we use to find fish a lot of the time. And, you know, you never really have that intimate experience that you're talking about underwater and understanding that. And I think, again, coming from being a little, a little kid, you know, seeing this whale and now, you know, as a scientist traveling and seeing them, as you said, in their element is, uh, is, is pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, so when is this, when is this video going to be available to folks to, to see? So hopefully the, there's a trailer out now, so you can find it online or on my website, um, to see sort of like some of the footage and I've been posting little snippets. Um, but the film hopefully will be out in either winter or spring of 2022. So because of the pandemic, it got a little bit delayed. Um, but I think it's just going to make it better. So, cause we were able to get back to Dominica in March, um, and, uh, and we got some really incredible, incredible footage that I'm so excited to share. Awesome. Well, we, we look forward to seeing it and kind of understanding the story that, you know, made it happen is all the more special. So thanks so much for, for sharing that. And I, I've got to ask Galen, you know, you look at your website and you see a picture of you diving with a sperm whale. And then you see a picture of you with a striped bass. And then you see a picture of you, you know, what I presume is on like the Columbia or Snake River with this huge white sturgeon, right? And so I just wonder, I mean, Tony and I, you know, we operate in certain circles, right? And I, we work, you know, our, our circles are largely fish circles, right? We obviously, it, it's not just that, but most of the folks that we work with are kind of in some, you know, 
fish type world and you know some are catch and release anglers some are some are commercial fishermen etc cetera, etc cetera. you obviously work with a much broader kind of ocean conservation demographic right and folks who are interested in, in, in whale conservation and in that kind of world and i'm just wondering kind of you know do you get asked often about like is there a contradiction between like going fishing and catching these fish um but also wanting to protect them it's you know i imagine that's something that comes up not that you know not that uncommonly and just wondering you know how do you respond to those folks who kind of don't get what looks like a paradox right because i think to many people it, it does and something we deal with too but i think for you especially yeah i get that all the time and it's, it's pretty interesting. And my answer to that is we all interact with the ocean in different ways. And one is not the right way or the wrong way. Um, I grew up fishing. It's part of my life. It's part of why I love the ocean. And it will always be part of what I love about the ocean. Um, and, you know, and as I, I mentioned earlier, like for a few years, I didn't fish. And then I really missed it. But I miss what I love about fishing is sort of the science behind it, right? Figuring it out. And I learn so much every time I fish. But yeah, when you're having a conversation with somebody about conservation, and I've certainly had people like Sylvia Earle, for example, um, who I'm very lucky to know, literally, you know, tell me, throw back that fish. Why do you fish? And all of that. And I said, but at you know, there's there's a few different point of views. So I understand that point of view. But the reality is that there's always going to be people fishing. So how do we create a dialogue where we can be on a level playing field? If I'm telling somebody not to fish, they're not going to listen to me, right? But I love fishing. And so then we can have a constructive conversation about conservation with more of an audience, with a broader audience. So you can see that conservation is my life, but I can fish responsibly, you know, just like there can be a responsible commercial fishery. I'm never going to say that commercial fishing shouldn't exist. It just needs to be done better in certain cases, you know, and there's just ways of looking at every stakeholder and everybody interacts with things in different ways. Some people are terrified of the ocean, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't care about, you know, keeping it healthy. So, you know, I don't like lizards, but it doesn't mean that like we shouldn't have lizards in the world. You know, my ideal world wouldn't have lizards, but I also know that they're an important part of the ecosystem, right? So it's just one of those things where there's like multiple stakeholders in the world. And if we alienate one versus the other, and for anybody who sort of attacks me for fishing, I just say, but I can talk to a fisherman about better practices from a standpoint of a fisherman, as opposed to, you know, being on some pedestal where I feel like, you know, I'm better than someone because I'm not. I love fishing. That's how I interact with the ocean. It's how I always have. But I do it in a responsible way, right? I don't, I keep only what I need and I don't keep a lot. Um, and, you know, and that's how I talk about it. So it's, no, that's super helpful. And it's interesting because, you know, you're talking about, again, opposite ends of the spectrum, but I think even within our own community, we deal with this a lot, right? So like somebody might keep a striped bass that's legally, you know, that you can legally keep and get absolutely, you know, murdered on social media for, for harvesting the striped bass. And it's like, you know, you're, you're creating these divisions within this community and it becomes very challenging to kind of find any common ground because there's kind of that vitriol, right? And I imagine that you deal with that in a much, you know, a much broader scale with all these different folks. No, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, anybody who gets on sort of a pedestal that's just a pure catch and release fisherman, um, it's, it's just not true. You're killing a fish, 
So whether or not you're choosing to kill a fish or doing your best not to kill it, not all of your fish are surviving. And we can do our best to try to release fish in the best way possible. And there are definitely better ways. But it's just one of those things that we have to just be realistic about it. Um, And I do release That's a truth bomb, Galen. Yeah, I, I, mean, think, I think that's I didn't, I didn't what the kids say these days. I think my son said that to me. It's a truth bomb. It is. It's the truth. You just you just absolutely said the truth. It's ironic that basically this discussion has been going on. I mean, when did when did Isaac Walton write the complete angler? It was like 1650 something, if I'm not mistaken. And like a big part of that book is a conversation between a fisherman, a falconer and a hunter over whose sport is better and pescator the fisherman won the argument because he can release the fish if he chooses and a falconer and a hunter cannot do these the decision was made you know um but you know the dialogue rages um and you're spot on i mean let's face it it's a blood sport and willie Willie, what do you always say? Galen, you'll love this. Well, I, 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 I uh, co-opted it from a friend who's a marlin captain who would always say, if you don't want to go, if you don't want to kill a marlin, don't go marlin fishing. But I think it's, it's more true for all fishing, right? If you don't want to kill a fish, don't go fishing. It's just the reality of it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a reality you have to accept. And um, that's just part of the game. And you can, again, as you said, just like folks in the conservation community can get on a pedestal, folks in our own fishing community can also do the same thing, but there's no way to avoid it. You know, it's just, it's just part of it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a reality we have to grapple with. And it's simple. It's as simple as that. Willie had, Willie had a large mouth, have a heart attack this winter. He called me. He's like, he's like, this, he's like, I caught a lot of fish, man. I caught a lot of fish. He's like, I picked up this largemouth. I went to unhook it. It shook like three times, and it was stone cold dead. He's like, I think it had a stroke or a heart it was, attack. It was something. it was the weirdest. I I shopped it around with the folks. Like, I guess a couple of, catching fish in very cold water. I guess sometimes can do that. But uh, yeah, it was pretty weird. And you know, on a thirty second ounce tube jig, you know, hooked in the tip of the snout. Not exactly a, a high mortality encounter, but things happen. You know, it's 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 part of the game. Yeah. No. And we can minimize that as much as possible when we're doing catch and release, you know, for sure. Um, you know, always using their proper tackle, but you know, it's just, it's just the reality. And, you know, with the Marlin thing, it's interesting because I, I have caught Marlin and I've caught, you know, every species of Marlin pretty much. And my takeaway every time I've caught a Marlin and released it is I don't need to do this again because I don't want to kill a fish. And I feel so privileged that I didn't. And it was, it's always, it had always been a bucket list item for me and, you know, to do and to see these fish and everything. And then once I, once I did it, I was like, I would be mortified if this fish died and I can't, I can't handle it. Like I couldn't mentally handle it so that I I choose not to do it. Um, and there's just certain things like that. Galen, we make smaller decisions like that all the time. You know, I know that I live in the Chesapeake Bay Mm -hmm. and there are certain conditions where the mortality of striped bass skyrockets right and during while those conditions are present and i have to i have to make those decisions there are days where i'll choose to fish for something else yeah absolutely. and i I think that's you know those are personal those are all personal choices and responsible decisions it's really hard to regulate that stuff yeah but i think as fishermen what you hope 
is that other fishermen love the resource as much as you do and like gladly make those decisions. Exactly. Exactly. And it's about sort of giving people like everything that I do. And it goes back to Willie's question is, you know, really talking about, you know, responsible decisions. And, you know, when someone's talking about conservation, it's about giving people the tools and the right questions to ask. Right. So freshwater fishermen know that, you know, once it's a certain temperature too high, they're not going to catch a trout because that fish, the mortality rate just skyrockets. Same with the stripers in the Chesapeake because when water's warmer, it's just harder, um, you know, for those fish to survive. Just the mortality goes up. So we're always making those decisions, but not everybody knows that that's a decision to be made. So while we can't regulate it, we can educate for it. And so by talking about it now, hopefully people will listen and then they'll think about it. But if, you know, just like any decision we make in life, but I think specifically with fishing, you can't expect somebody to make a decision towards conservation if they don't have the tools or know the questions to ask. So it's about presenting those in a constructive way. um, And then, and then they can move forward. And if they still decide to kill that fish, like somebody's going to kill the last bluefin tuna, right? Because they're not going to care. Just like somebody will eat an endangered species knowingly or somebody still wants to kill whales. But I feel better about it if, or about my role in it, if I have then armed them with the proper questions to ask when they're making that decision. Because, I mean, there's always going to be bad people in the world, right? Or people who are greedy or whatever. That's just the reality. But if we arm them with those questions, then moving forward, at least, at least we know we've done what we can do. Galen, let me, you know, we're, you're talking about, we're, we're covering a million different topics. <laughs> and there's, there's something that I, I think, you know, the listeners, I, I would like them to understand. Because one of the, you know, kind of one of the things that plagues me with the way that fishing is now is social media. And we had Annie Daniel Chuck talking about, you know, changes in technology. And that's a whole other mm-hmm. podcast. I don't want to get on there. But, you know, like I, I saw you and your mom fishing. I saw you casting. I'm listening to your experience. And like, you know, we, we had talked about privately we had talked about funding woes for work that you need to do and running an association <laughs> you can always go to our website and hit the paypal donations leak we are a c3 so it's tax deductible but you know i see so much attention being driven to people who i don't really think are worthy whether they're male or female and it, you know, the young people coming up, people who are like really good, I think some of the resources for them are diverted to this, you know, kind of noise that's taken over from increases in technology across the board. And like, I don't know, my message is to to all the to all of our sp- sponsors who are kind enough to help us out, you know, fly fishing as an industry has taken on this 50, 50, uh, movement where they want 50% of the anglers to be male and 50% of the anglers to be female. It just makes sense. Fly fishing is literally the perfect sport for, uh, you know, uh, anyone. It, It doesn't matter. You, you don't have to be a six foot four, you know, muscle bound guy to fly fish anyone literally anyone can do it and you can do it like into your 80s 
So there's this big 50 by 50 movement. And it shocks the hell out of me that the first time that I heard about Galen Rosenwax was when she was walking down a dock to go fishing. And it, it, I don't know, this isn't really a question for you. It's just more a statement on the industry. Like you should be the poster child. You know, when you, when you combine your scientific knowledge and your passion and your ability, I, I don't know if I've ever, I don't know if I've ever met uh, another female angler. That's like more of the total package. And I, and I, I just, I'd love to hear your feedback on that because I, I really, I, I mean, that's the honest to God truth. Like it just makes me scratch my head. I see a lot of attention being given to certain people and I'm, I don't understand it. I mean, I don't, I do not understand it. I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Just moving through the industry in your life? Like it, um, I, I don't get it. <laughs> well, oh, thank you for those incredibly kind words. I, I really don't know how to respond to that other than to say thank you. Um, and I really do appreciate that um, because I think for me, I focus on my work and you know, the resource and doing what I can do. And it's never been about sort of amplifying it on that, you know, social media platform. I mean, I certainly have all of those platforms and, you know, I try to share my work, you know, anybody who wants to check it out at Galen, go explore. Um, <laughs> so Tony could give me the little plug for that or my website. There's a lot of material too. Um, Mostly fishing stuff only goes on my Instagram, though, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it just has never, never really been a focus for me. It's really always been about um, about enjoying the ocean, sharing the work. Uh, my films have gotten out to people for sure. And, you know, anybody who wants to talk to me, I'm always there and, and willing to share. I just, I guess I, I'm not a marketer. I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist who likes to tell really great ocean stories and share my passion for it and um, not really create maybe the content that is amplified on social media. Um, I really just try to be you know, exactly who I am. So I, I don't have an answer for why. If I did, I probably wouldn't be answering that question. I've already done it. So if anybody has any advice for me, please send it my way. But, um, but I really do appreciate those words, Tony, because it really means a lot. I mean, you know, we all we all operate in this industry and I think we all know, you know, what it's about right now. And um, I don't know, you know, it, it seems like, uh, you know, with the teams of marketing professionals that that some of these larger groups have that it would have it would have just dawned on somebody because I, I think I don't know. I mean, more than anything, it's your passion, right? that's what drove you to get educated on it. That's what, that's what drives you to, you know, kind of do everything that you're doing. So it, to me, that's what the same reason why we pick Willie to do the job. That's, that's what should drive this industry because frankly, that's, what's going to get young boys and girls involved. You know, I just think all the kids out, it always, for me, it always comes back to kids. And I think of like all the little girls out there that like, you know, they see a movie or something and, and maybe they don't they don't have as, as wonderful of an experience as you had with Feisty, right? Had to bring Feisty back up. Hope you find him one day, by the way. That would be pretty <laughs> badass. Um, that would be amazing. But, you know, they, they're still, there's still that little candle burning in them and they think it's cool. And, yeah. um, and, you know, I think more role models like you that are out there, 
that's encouraging the next generation. And, you know, Willie will tell you that's, that's what I think the most important thing in all of this is because, you know, we're not going to be here forever. And there has to be people that, you know, next man up, you know, take, take the spot, be the, be the next passionate person. That's my point. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that for me, the, the ultimate compliment is when I do have some parents, um, either email me or message me, however, and tell me, you know, oh, my, my little girl or my son, my like daughter or my son, like loves your work and we follow everything you do. And, you know, can you talk to them? And oftentimes I just jump on like a zoom with them because they get so excited. And for me, that's why I do what I do. It's about inspiring people to care, whether it's an adult or a kid. It's really about getting people to engage and care about our planet. And for me, obviously, I'm focused on the ocean, but um, it's all about inspiration and how to amplify that message. I don't exactly know um, other than to continue doing what I'm doing. So awesome. Can't can't think of a better kind of parting message for folks, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the arc of your work and the importance of really passing it on and making sure that we have these resources around for future generations, right? I mean, as Tony said, he talks about his son, AJ, all the time. And the fact that he takes some fishing for snakeheads instead of striped bass, even though, even though he lives on Chesapeake Bay, and uh, just thinking about how we can how we can make sure we keep our resources healthy for those folks, and also make sure that they are you know uh, educated and aware of the importance of those resources. So, um, Galen, we want to thank you for joining us today on the Guidepost. This has been an incredible discussion. Uh, looking forward to seeing the video when it comes out. Uh, maybe we can get a sneak peek. Uh, if not, we'll have to wait until uh, until later in the year. But uh, you know, keep doing all of your wonderful work, you know, and and keep fighting the good fight. Uh, I know we look forward to seeing you back uh, back on the water this fall as well. So thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great discussion. Hey, let's all go fishing in the fall when let's Montauk blows up. If you don't call me and Willie, we're going to be a little upset let's let's do it i've got a boat i know where to go i know how to do it let's go bring the <laughs> mooching rods please and the plug cut herring <laughs>